Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Jason McDaniel released his first album, Man in the Black Hat, in 1995, and after that played in country music bands. Last year he released the album Honky Tonk Life, and now he's released the single Tall Glass of Country and A Shot of Rock and Roll, and we're going to talk about that and other things. Hi, Jason. G'day, Sophie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and I've been very entertained by all of your music because it is entertainment music, which is great. But I'm going to start by asking you what was the inspiration behind Tall Glass of Country and A Shot of Rock and Roll? Oh, look, uh, you know, I love whiskey, as you know. It's no secret. I love the Harleys. That's no secret either. Um, I love loud music, party music, and I also love my country music, and that's how I was brought up. So people say I've got a foot in each camp. So uh, the story for the line of Tall Glass of Country was I was out with a few of my hogmates on the bikes, and one of them, we pulled up at a pub and they said, what do you want to drink? And I have no idea where the line came from, but I said, I'll have a tall glass of country. And he said, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, give me a schooner of beer, will you? Like, what, what's the matter? And it stuck. And I thought, hang on, I'll, uh, there must be a song in that. So then I put it together with, you know, tall glass of country. I love the whiskey, shot of rock and roll. Then I thought, hang on, I can probably make something out of this because Mark Bringing was part country, part rock, you know, and, and put right. the two together and here we are. So, yeah, that's that's where I got to. So once you had the line in your head, did you then get back on your bike and think, like just keep repeating it to yourself so you didn't forget it? I did. I had to because, yeah, otherwise I would have got home and totally gone, you know. It would have been, what's that? What's that? What, what was that line? And I would have come up with something different, yeah. Well, it's also not like you had a notebook on the back of your Harley, <laughs> easily handy too. No, that's right. So, yeah, it was going over in my head and I was thinking, you know, what what else can I add to it? How, what, how can I build the song? What theme did I want for it? You know, how was I going to try and make it relate to country and relate to rock? And that's where I brought in the other artists, you know, Hank Jr.'s in there and Led Zeppelin, Lennon Skinner and all that sort of stuff that I've got in there as well, a bit of ACDC. So, yeah, I was starting to think about the plot as I was riding home and I'm amazed I got home actually because, yeah, it's one of those rides where, you, you know, when you get home and you think, I've been thinking that much, gee, I hope I didn't run over anyone or do anything wrong, you know, on the way home. That, that's what it was like, you know. <laughs> so you said your upbringing was a bit of country and a bit of rock and roll, but when you started out as a, as a musician, which which was the priority or which came first, maybe? Uh, well, I was rock. Uh, I was all rock. I was actually in an Angels cover band called We're No Angels and um, I had my own band called Direct Influence, which is a band uh, we used to do a lot of Dire Straits covers and right. um, another band called Foreplay. They, there was only four of us, right? So that's where <laughs> it was. So clean it up. Um, so that's where, we, that's where I started and... You can blame Charlie Boyder, who's Slim's old guitarist, for getting me into country. Even though I liked country, at, I was playing at a pub one night in Richmond in my hometown um, in the Hawkesbury, and Slim was coming through the next day to play at the Regent Theatre in Richmond, and the band that night, the Travelling Country Band, came to the pub that I was playing solo at. Right. I used to do a thing, say, well, you know, give me a song, and if I can't play it, country, rock, whatever, I'll shout you a beer. Um, so Charlie actually asked me to play the Long Yard, a Slim Dusty song, and I played it. And then straight after that, I was playing a lot of other rock stuff that that come on. And uh, he came up and introduced himself to me, and I didn't know who he was at that time. I knew the name, Charlie Boyder, but he didn't introduce himself. 
as that. He just said, hi, I'm Charlie. And um, I didn't know what he looked like, as in Charlie Boyder. So I there had a couple of beers with Charlie and Glenn Jones was there and Glenn Ford. And um, Charlie said, look, I've got a band called Montana. We need a singer. Are you able to come over tomorrow to St. Mary's and do a, a gig for us? Do you know enough country stuff to do at least an hour? And I said, yeah, of course I do. You know, we'll carry that off. Still unaware. And um, I remember I got home that night and or the next day I was talking to the old man and he said, you know, how'd the gig go? I said, yeah, it was good. I said, this bloke, Charlie Border came in. He said, Charlie Border, is that Slim Dusty's guitarist? I said, no, it wouldn't be him. I said, but he's got this band, you know. So we had tickets to the Slim Dusty show to go and see. And here we are sitting there watching and he's the same guy up there on the stage. So then it all dropped, you know. So it's his <laughs> fault that I got in the country because I was there singing for the next 20 years in Montana. So, yeah. And, of course, at that show you turned to your father and said you were correct. <laughs> that yeah, that's right. Show. Well, no, he was turning to me and saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, righto, righto. Yes. So you said when yeah you know, you had that thing in your in your show where you said if I if I don't know the song I'll shout you a beer that suggests that you had a really large repertoire of songs. So when you were doing those particular shows, do you know how many songs you knew off the top of your head? Uh, well, all of them pretty much. Um, and if we didn't, we'd make up the words. So I've made <laughs> up the words to a lot of songs, and I think maybe that's where the the songwriting comes in, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> to be able to make it up off the top like that when you forget the words, but. Um, you would have, I don't know, you'd, you'd get the common ones that people would always say, you know, play a Stones song, play a Beatles song, you know, Credence and John Cougar and all this type of stuff. Then you get a Johnny Cash number. And, you know, I even remember somebody asked me for a Charlie Pride thinking they caught me out, you know, with Snakes Crawl at Night. But I remember that as a kid growing up. So, yeah, I could I could pull that one off. So you just remember these things. And, um, yeah, because I love the music so much, you try and remember as much. And then I had a book on the side as well that was just full of stuff. Back in those days, you used to have the typewriter, so I'd type it out and then write over top what the chords were. And if somebody asked for a song, I'd flick through and make sure it was in there. If it was in there, if not, I'd make it up, you know, just because quite often you'd know the chorus, right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if they're drunk, you'd do it, you wait. If I didn't know it, I'd wait till towards the end of the night. <laughs> yeah. And they're drunk, and then they're like, hey, that was cool, you know? So they, they, they don't get up close, it. mumble in the microphone. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah, that's cool. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but you just said you that you remember that Charlie Pride song from childhood. Now, a lot of people couldn't remember a song from childhood and pull it off. So, do you have you always played by ear? Yeah, I have. Okay. Uh, I've never had musical teaching as far as that. Uh, I've had singing lessons. That's about it as far as it goes. But um, yeah, for for all that, it was always played by ear. I learned to play guitar by ear just by listening to the old uh, records and whatever that my folks had. Um, and try and pick it out and and learn it from there. My cousin was a good guitarist and he was in bands, so I'd get Wayne to show me some chord shapes and stuff like that. And then it's amazing with three chords, you can play just about every song on the planet. You know? <laughs> three chords of the truth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that was uh, that's what I would do. I'd just sit there and listen and, and try and work it out. Or back in those days, you know, you could record it off the radio. So, mm-hmm. you know, you'd hear it on the radio with the old cassette tape in, you'd hit record and you might catch three quarters of the song, but that was enough to learn, you know, and pick mm-hmm. it up next week. Mm. So at what age in your childhood did you start to become interested in music? Uh, I was about 11, about 11 years of age and my family are Irish. Um, so having that Irish background, naturally, if you know any Irish families, it's like all of us, I suppose, you know, a couple of sherbets in and everyone wants to sing and play and whatever. So they're all singing the old Irish classics and all that sort of stuff. So 
yeah, it was about then that I really developed and started to follow the music. So I really enjoyed it, brought mm-hmm. lots of happiness doing it. So loved it. And then I learned about all these other, like, you know, to hear the Beatles. It was just amazing. And the 12 bar blues as a guitarist for me was like, that was legendary, you know? So yeah. And today you just try and combine it all. For me, it's about having great fun up there on stage with the band and hoping to portray that down to the audience and, you know, let's have a big party. Uh, and, uh, well, sorry, I was, I had the question at the front of my mind. Now it's gone to the back of my mind and I've retrieved it. At what age did you get your first guitar? Well, I was, uh, 13 and I remember that distinctly because my grandmother, we couldn't afford my family, you know, working hard like everyone else, we couldn't afford a guitar. So my family, uh, my grandmother actually saved up $1 notes and put them into a photo album for me. And she had 99 that's what I got on Christmas day. It was 99 $1 notes in a photo album. And I took that down to the local music shop in Richmond in New South Wales. And I bought my first guitar with that. Wow. So it was, I've still got that guitar. It's actually signed by all the guys that I toured with in 1997. So, you know, Reg Poole, Stan Costa, Sleem, Tracy Costa, all these guys that Rex Dallas that were on tour with Brian Letton, all that Terry Gordon, and Chad Morgan got all those guys to sign it. So it's actually hanging out in my house. So that's the culprit. That's the one that started. Wow. And what a great story as well. And and good on Gran for supporting you. Yeah. Sounds like your family was very supportive of you being a musician. Yeah, they were. They said, don't do it. You know, there's uh, you, it's a hard life and you won't make any money out of it. So they were right. But, you know, it's been one hell of a fun time, I can tell you that. So I wouldn't pass that up. So just to go back to Charlie's band, Montana, that you said, yeah. you know, he said, can you, you know, can you do an hour's worth of country music? Well, it turned into more than an hour because it seems like you were in different permutations of that band for decades, actually. So yeah. did, was that just a case of rolling with the changes? Like you figured, okay, well, I'm just, I'm here for the ride. I'll just see what happens. Well, yeah, it was really, I, I had no idea it was going to last. So you never do. And the caliber of those guys, I mean, they were Slim Dusty's backing band, you know, out of that band. So to work with those guys, I thought they're not going to hang on to me for too long um, because I kept bringing new artists as I would hear guys like Dwight Yoakam and, you know, Garth Brooks had come on the scene and say, hey, we're going to play this, you know. And and Charlie being a traditional guitarist for Slim, he, I, I didn't know how it would go, but he actually really enjoyed playing that different style of music and he's well and truly capable. So, yeah, we got right into it. So the band sort of changed its feel and we changed our name a few times across the journey as well. But um, yeah, it was it was, it was was good. And in between when I wasn't working with Montana, I was back in the pubs doing, you know, the Angels or or whatever it was that people were asking for, you know, because I, I just loved the music. Didn't matter what it was. Mm. And, and at which point in the timeline did you release Man in the Black Hat? Because that was 1995. So relative to you joining Montana, was it around the same time or did... Yeah, it was. It was uh, so I joined Montana in '93, uh, and I remember um, we, I, my very first tour was um, what's called Beef Week. I'm not sure if that still goes in Casino. Oh yes, it does. I was in Casino not that long ago. And okay, yeah. Week. So it was Beef Week in Casino, and I was there on the tour. Was um, Terry Gordon, Lucky Grills, uh, Chad Morgan and us so it was just nothing but laugh all the way through glenn jones was on that tour as well um so that's where it sort of started and you know we we kept going and you know had the laughs and what can i tell you we learned so much or i learned so much over that time you know from there 
And Terry Gordon and uh, Jonesy, Glenn Jones, actually kept saying to me, if you want to get anywhere, you need to be a songwriter. You need to write songs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. So I started writing and um, then I'm Glenn Jones introduced me to Glenn Ford, who was the guy that wrote Southerly Change that Tracy Costa just released again and did well. That was on my first album back then. Um, and, yeah, he introduced me to 40 and 40 sat down and I started writing songs with 40 and that gave me sort of some schooling on on how to do it. And uh, then I released, I wrote the 13 tracks because 13 is my lucky number. So I wrote 13 tracks on uh, that, Man in the Black Hat, and then took Mick Kieran and the band back into the studio and we recorded it. So, it's, um, And that's where it was. It, it got through because they were saying, you know, hey, you've got to write your own stuff. You can't do covers forever. And, um, you know, it turns out they're right. Mm. <laughs> so all that time when you were in Montana and its permutations and also playing your own shows, doing the Angels, and as you said, uh, were you still writing? Because it's been a few years between those original releases. Um, no. Well, what happened, um, we got really busy in Montana. So I, I kicked that going until year 2000. Then I left Sydney um, just to have a break because we were flat out for, for a good, I don't know, nearly 10 years, seven years, wow. I think it was. Um, and I then just sort of gave it away because I, I just needed a break from it. I mm-hmm. was losing the uh, ability to write because we were so busy in the show's and in Montana, we do covers and originals and mm-hmm. you never had time to actually sit down and write. So the creativity side for me disappeared because obviously you're working through the day, right? So mm-hmm. you go to your day job and then you go play all night and then go back to your day job and your eyes are hanging out of your head. So you start. I started to lose my creativity. So I took some time off uh, out of it, moved down to Victoria and um, lo and behold, it was, well, when COVID, so that was like 20 years uh, in right. between. And I would just play the occasional solo gig if the local pub needed somebody or whatever in between that time, but not a lot at all. And then COVID, it was my daughter's fault. She came back. She didn't, she knew I played, but didn't know to what extent. And um, she found my first album on the internet and said, is this you? And I said, oh yeah, that was me. That was back then, you know, really? I didn't know you did that. You know, you should get back into it. And then my wife, got on to me as well said yeah do that because you're annoying us you know in the middle of covid like get out there and start writing songs so honky tonk life was the first i thought i'll give it a go and see if i can have the creativity back because i've been out of it for so long and um yeah lo and behold i think on the two years now it's nearly 200 songs that i've written um wow they're not good songs by the way right but you know 200 songs and we're shortlisting them down for for well honky tonk life and then now this album born to ride Mm. um so I'm just just thinking about you know the the gap in, in creativity. When you started songwriting again, was it did it feel like you were sort of stepping back into something comfortable, or was it a process of starting again almost and relearning what it had been like to write songs? Uh, yeah, it was. It was. I, I found it really difficult um, because I totally lost the creativity and the confidence. I think as well because you know I hadn't hadn't been out with a band for for so long or, you know, really played anything. So um, what I actually did was I, to get my head going, I just copied other songs. So what I did was just pick um, Boot Scoot and Boogie, for example. So I'd put that song on and I'd write my own words across what it was, just to the tune, to try and get the creativity going in my head of rhyming again and making sense of a song. And then I'd throw it away and I'd just pick another 
random song, you know, I love um, Dwight Yoakam stuff. So, you know, grab one of his songs and then write my own words across his music. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I, I must've done that for, I don't know, weeks, weeks and weeks on end. And then I started, then I pick up the guitar and I go, right, I'm starting to get into it. And then I just hit record on the, on the system and then just start recording a whole lot of rubbish to start with. And then you go back and you go, hang on, that line had something in it. That line had something in it. That chord progression sounds okay. And then I just start putting the songs and working. So I sort of had to retrain myself into it if, if, if that's a way, but that's how I did it. So. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you instinctively knew that you had to clear out some clutter in a way. And so that was the process was to, was to just start, just start actually to start writing and playing whatever and whatever came out you were just pulling things out of that could be useful, but there's an inherent acknowledgement that there was a clearing process required before you could get to the songs that were actually ones you wanted to record. Yeah, most definitely. And it was, it was a clearing process. And then it was, does any of this make sense? You know, the the lyrics you're putting in are there stories there because, you know, with everything you, you want to have a story in a song. That's why you write it. It's got some message in there or some, you know, some story to you or to somebody else. Um, So it was just, you know, does it make sense? Does it have that there? Does it have the feel that I want and does it represent me? So it was trying to get to that and being uh, nervous and very hesitant because I'd been out of it for so long to get to that point. But um, when I started Honky Tonk Life, I felt that I was starting to get there, you Mm -hmm. know, starting and starting. And then with this album, when I shot them over to Dave and Beck and said, oh, what do you reckon of these? I think they're a bit rough. And, you know, they come back and they said, oh, I think you might you know, no, keep working them up. I, I think you might have a couple here that might, you know, might be okay. You might surprise yourself. So here we are. <laughs> and uh, did you have to run the songs past your daughter for her approval before you recorded them? Yeah, I did. But look, they weren't close enough to Taylor Swift. So they were out the window straight away, right? So uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I am really interested that you wrote all these, wrote the Honky Tonk Life songs in COVID because uh, they are they are entertaining songs. There's, and when I say party songs, some people would take that as a pejorative. What I, by that, I mean they are really entertaining. You could put them on and have a great time. It doesn't mean there isn't meaning in the lyrics. It's just that that's the, the feeling of it. Yeah. So it's almost like, well, it is you, like that you created that in a vacuum because there was no partying happening at the time those songs were being created. Um, so I'm wondering if you were imagining that audience as you wrote them so that you could create something for the audience that wasn't the audience would, that would come back. Yeah, well, you're correct. I did. I, you're on the right track. What I actually did, because I, I love party music and, you know, that's how I was sort of brought up. Um, it was I wrote the music with a purpose for myself Right. Is that, you know, when you come home from a hard day at work, is that the type of stuff I want to put on mm-hmm. and party to, have a few drinks, have a barbecue, get friends over, whatever it is. So that's what I wanted and that's what I was trying to write it at because our shows are like that mm-hmm. and then I wanted it to try and represent what I wanted and the band wanted to deliver as a show and get it as close as that on the album. So when people put it on, they go, oh, yeah, that's that's them. That's There's no mistaking that that's Jason. That's what they do. So yeah, yeah, that's that's where we're heading. And well, it, was, it worked, <laughs> as you said in COVID. You know, it's like solitary confinement, right? So you're like, okay, I'm writing this song, but there's no one here to play it to to bounce it off. Or hey, what do you think of this? Or yeah, have this shot of whiskey and then tell me what you think of this song. You know, so yeah, yeah. It's in there. But luckily enough, I think some of it, some of it come off. <laughs> 
Know. Well, it's, it's it's certainly perfect for people who have a summer barbecue plan or even a spring barbecue because we're not quite in summer yet. Uh, but because I, I was thinking, wow, that's already new music to have Tall Glass of Country out. But now that you said you wrote all those songs and you've, like, I understand why you can already have a new song and it sounds like there is another album coming or yeah, at least being well, thought of. Yeah, there is. Look, there's Born to Ride, which is the album that this will be on that'll be out, you know, next year and. Mm-hmm. There's others in the cupboard, but whether or not they're good enough, who knows? Um, you know, nothing's ever good enough as far as being an artist to it. You know, you're always worried about when people hear it or see it or whatever for the first time. Uh, but yeah, who knows? And I'm continuing to write, so hopefully I can write something better for the for the next album and the one after, and however long I can hang around for. So given that you took that break, um, moved in, moved to a different state, took a break from recording, from writing, from playing live. And then you've come back with this incredible output. Does it feel like it was a good idea to have that break? As forced as it sounds like it was, do you think that actually having that long break led to you being this creative? I suppose, or maybe it's impossible to know. Um, yeah, no, you're actually right. I was thinking about this today, actually, believe it or not, um, driving into work today. was That was exactly it. I think if I hadn't had that time off and hadn't had the, the years, the life experience, you know, that I do now, um, now I'm starting to sound like my parents, right? You know, when you get to my age, but um, yeah, when I, if I hadn't had that life experience then I wouldn't have been able to write about it with what I believe is the feeling and, you know, the real input that, that mm-hmm. you have because you lived through that and I hadn't done it at that stage. So uh, yeah, certainly I think that was a benefit to me because um, I don't know what I would have turned out if I had kept writing on the way. Um, mm-hmm. I may not have got to, the sound that I have now, because a lot of people were saying to me, oh, you know, you're too rock, you're too this, you're too that, you're not exactly country. And I said, but that's me. That's who I am. I'm not, I'm not in a box. You know, I'm not rock. I'm not country. I'm not jazz. I'm not blues. A little bit of all of it, but it's a bloody good time. You know, that's what I, that's what I want to do. So uh, I don't think I would have got there if that gap wasn't there. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting those statements about, oh, you're not this, you're not that. It's like when you you are playing the sorts of shows you were, cover shows, entertaining people in pubs, it's usually three sets, it's a, a lot of different songs. You're never just one thing because you have to be able to have a broad repertoire in order to entertain people. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, entertain is the word, right? Where, you know, if you get up on stage, no matter what you're doing, if you've got a microphone, you're there to entertain and people have either paid money or they're paying with their time to come and see or be entertained for an hour or two hours or however long it is. So, you know, you need to do the best bloody job you can. So, um, yeah, that's what it is, entertainment. So if it's if you've got to be in a box, then I'm not the one that's that's jammed in the box, you know, doing one particular genre. Mm. Yes, it's, I think it's possibly the onlookers who are jammed into the boxes. Um, but speaking <laughs> of entertainment, Tamworth is coming up. It do is, you have yeah. some Tamworth plans? Yeah, look, uh, we are going and uh, we're working on some shows at the moment. Because of this album, we're actually too late to sort of book up a few shows, but a few spots have come in over the last couple of days. So um, keep an eye on the socials. We'll certainly let you know that that we're there. We're planning to be there. And this new band I've got, they're a cracking band. I can't wait. They're on the album. They're the guys that played there. So it's that actual band that will be with me live. Um, So I can't wait to get loose on stage with these guys. Well, hopefully someone will shout you a tall glass of country and a shot of rock and roll if they see you in Tamworth. But in the meantime, they can listen to the song, Jason McDaniel. It's been great to find out more about you and your music. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Sunburnt Country Music Podcast. For more Australian country music interviews and reviews and other things, go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.